God, thank you so much for being so incredibly good, God. Thank you for the answered prayers. Thank you, God, that I, as I look down the list, Lord, I, I should have a saved list of every time that a prayer is answered, and I take those off my list, God. I ought to make another list, and it would be longer than my prayer list, God, if I look back on all the prayers that you've answered and all the miracles that you've done and all the times that you've intervened and all the marriages that you've restored and all the broken homes that you've mended, God, and all the sicknesses that you've healed, and Lord, all the times that you've come and made a way out of no way and, and brought a payment at the last minute when it like it couldn't be made, God. You, you're a good God. You've been good to us, Father. I just want to tell you thank you so much, but God, we are a needy people, and you know every one of these requests are, are very urgent requests, needy requests, God, and I pray you'd intervene in each of them, and Lord, I pray to intervene there, Lord, with the chest pains. Lord, you know what's going on. You knew it before we ever got to it, Lord. And I, I pray that your perfect will be accomplished. But I pray for complete healing. I pray for grace for these families. God, I pray you meet with us tonight as we look into this last chapter of the letter to the church at Rome, God. And Lord, I pray you'd give us something to strengthen us, Father, to encourage us to go out to be a better servant, that we might tell a lost and dying world about Jesus, that they might see Christ in us. The souls might be saved through us by the, by the precious blood of Jesus alone. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in Romans chapter 16, I'm just going to read a couple of verses. I know a lot of you guys stand for the reading. You're welcome to, but I'm only going to read two verses and we're going to move on. I'll just read them one at a time. Chapter 16, verse 1, I commend you, Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Centraea, which is there just outside of Corinth that ye receive her in the Lord as becometh saints, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you, for she hath been a secure of many and of myself also. So it was customary when someone would go from a church, thank you, you can be seated when a church would go somebody or would send somebody out. It's kind of what we'd call a missionary today. And somebody went from one location to another location to help a church. It'd be, again, kind of like a missionary. It was, a, it was customary for the church to to send a letter, the sending church, where they were coming from, to send a letter with them to the receiving church. They let the receiving church know, hey, this is a straight-up saint. This is somebody right here that's a worker in the church. This is somebody that's coming to help. This is what they're bringing. This is the reason why they're coming. And, and we're letting you know ahead of time so that you can take care of them. Make sure you take good care of, of the servant. It's like a letter of commendation as to, as to why they're coming and what they're doing. Um, we don't really know a lot about Phoebe right here. This is all we really know from the Scriptures, what Paul tells us. But what we do know is that she is a dedicated worker in the church at Centraea, which is there just out from Corinth. And, and we know that she's obviously a dedicated Christian woman. She's obviously done a lot to help Paul by the things that he says here. And, and because of that, in this one statement, God has chosen to immortalize her name, put it in the Word of God just for being a servant. He tells the church at Rome, says, I want you to take good care of her. It, it's, it's not just the responsibility of a receiving church to have a missionary come in and take care of them. It's a blessing to have a missionary come in, and you get an opportunity to take care of them. It's a blessing to be able to do something for somebody that, honestly, they give their whole life to serving the Lord. That's what they do. They travel from place to place to place. Many of them, if they even have a place they call home, they're hardly ever there. They're always out, and their whole goal is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and to try to be a blessing to other people. So when they happen to come your way, it's an opportunity to be a blessing 
to them when they come your way. You guys know when we do concerts and we bring anybody in here, it doesn't matter if it was Karen Peck or if it's when we had Zach Williams or Jordan Feliz or, or Carrollton or 10th Avenue North. It doesn't make any difference if it's contemporary Southern gospel. When we bring groups in here, it is our goal to take care of them. We set up a, a nice reception room over here at the gym for them, and we put everything they could possibly want in that gym, when Zach Williams and Jordan Fleet both made comments that we've never had anybody go so out of the way to take such good care of us. We want it that way every time they come because the truth is they're coming here to be a blessing to somebody. And I don't want them to pour a blessing out on us and leave here spent and not be able to do something for somebody else. So what we want to do is bless those that came here to bless us. But it's a commandment. That's what he's telling the church at Rome here. Take care of the ones that are coming to you when they come. Bless them, encourage them, lift them up. Try to do everything that you can to build them up so that when they leave here, they're, they're encouraged to go somewhere else and be a blessing to someone else. You never know the next place they go to may not have the ability to take as good a care of them. They may not have the ability to encourage them or lift them up quite the same. You never know the situation. They may be going into a church that's in the middle of, a, of an uproar and God's going to use them to try to fix something. So you don't know what's happening when they leave here. All we know is that when they're here, we get an opportunity to be a blessing to them. Amen. So Paul is encouraging them here in his final chapter, take care of her. She is a missionary for Christ. He says, assist her that word assist means to stand by her i would imagine that would be pretty important to paul for christians to stand by each other anybody ever been in a spot you just need somebody that'll stand with you you just if you just get one friend if you just get somebody that'll stay with you when when paul wrote his second letter to timothy he said in chapter 4 and verse 16 at my first answer no man stood with me but all men forsook me I pray, God, that it may not be laid to their charge, notwithstanding the Lord stood with me, strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear. Paul says to the church at Rome, and God put it in the book, so he said to the church at LaGrange, Georgia, take care of each other. Stand by the missionary. Stand by brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter who they are. Stand by those that are fallen and need help. You know, if somebody falls in the church, it's easy to, to drop punt them and kick them out the door because they made a mistake. But we're supposed to try to love them back to Christ. We're supposed to stand beside them. What he's saying right here is, is stand by those who are in the fellowship with us, our brothers and sisters in Christ. He says in verse 3, to greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks. So obviously they have put their own life in harm's way, in some kind of way for Paul, uh, what he says, for my own life laid down their own necks, unto whom I not only give thanks, but also to all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. If you remember back in the day, there wasn't church buildings like we have now. Most churches were in a house. They were started in a house. They gathered at a house. They didn't have a building. Everybody went. He says, greet that church as well. I, I did try looking. I'm not really sure. I couldn't find any absolutes, even from studying what other people say and kind of their commentaries and putting together. But it's interesting to me that it mentioned the wife's name first. Nothing particularly to that. It's not like chauvinistic or anything. I just, that they put the wife's name first. So I, I did take a look at it. Paul mentions this couple three different times in his writing. 
Two of the three times he mentions the wife first. I found that, that Luke mentioned them in the Acts of the Apostles. Luke mentioned the same couple three times. He uses a different name one time, but he mentions the couple three times. And he also uses the wife's name two out of three times ahead of the husband's name. And, and here's the reason. Here, I'll tell you straight up what I was looking for. To see if I could find something that showed evidence that she was spiritually stronger than him. That, that, just, that was an appearance. If, if Paul mentions her before him... In my mind, it made me think that she is the spiritually stronger one in the family. And, and the reason I just, I, I tried studying and looking a little bit, I didn't just like digging something in depth, and, and I really don't see any evidence to prove either way. But it's, it was, if anything, to give some encouragement to ladies today because in a lot of cases in the household today, the women are the spiritually stronger ones. The women are the ones bringing the family to church, and they're not supposed to do it that way. God designed the husband to do it, but when he don't, the woman has to. And then a lot of women are stepping up to the plate and being the spiritual strength of their family and the spiritual stronghold. And so I just thought there might be something there, but I, I, I do kind of tend to believe that there's something. She was probably more involved in the church. I'm just thinking if I'm, if I'm talking about somebody, a couple in the church, if the wife's always there and the husband's not there as much, then I may be apt to put her name first. Does that make sense? So, so I have any proof of that. I'm just sharing that with you. I'm sorry. I guess I'm just meddling along, but that was what I was trying to see if there was anything to it. Um, it's a couple that Paul met when he was on his second missionary journey. He lived in their house with them, stayed with them. They're tent makers. Paul's a tent maker, so naturally it made a good fit for him to stay there with them, and, and they worked together. There's really good reason to believe that Paul might possibly be the one that led them to the Lord um, there on that second missionary journey when he met them and, and, and spending some time with them. There's not an absolute proof. It doesn't just say that, but it's a really strong possibility. Um, we looked at this last week, so we won't back up to the Scripture, but they were the ones that took Apollos in. Remember Apollos, uh, and of course Apollos is a name greatly used in the Word of God. He was a great disciple of Christ, but they're the ones that took Apollos in. The Scripture said that, that they taught him in the way of God more perfectly. So this is obviously a very scriptural family, a very godly family, a very knowledgeable family of, of the Word of God. And it seemed to be they probably... Two incredible people that were living a good Christian life. And so Paul makes mention of them here. But then he goes through a, a list of names. One of the things I said last week, and, and I still believe it's true, but I thought of something after I said it that I didn't want to leave the wrong impression because of who Paul is. I said it's obvious that Paul is not a pastor of a local church. And he's not. He starts the church and he moves on. But it's also very obvious that he has a pastor's heart. Because Paul absolutely loves God's people. He absolutely loves God's children. And, and he may not be a local pastor at one, but everywhere he goes, he's starting churches. And the reason we have 13 books of the New Testament is because he's writing letters to check on them, to check on their well-being, to give instructions to them, which is instructions to us. So it's obvious that Paul has a, a pastor's heart, if you will. And all that is is to love God's people and to love the lost so much that you want to see them saved, that they become God's people. But here in this, in this portion, he names 35 people. Nine of them that he mentions here are with him at Corinth. 
24 of them that he mentions are at the church at Rome. There in Corinth, eight of the nine are men, one of them is women. The ones at the church at Rome, he mentions 17 men, 17 women. And then there, there, there's the two households that he mentioned. Those are of the households. And then there's, there's several unnamed people in here that are mentioned as well. You know, it's funny how God puts, a, God puts a lot of stuff in his word that he gives you just a little bit, and it's like he pulls it back, and he don't give you the details, and it makes you want to know what they are. Y'all know what I'm talking about? It's kind of like so, some of the things he really doesn't give. Um, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light that was good. God divided the light from the darkness, and the light he called in, the darkness he called night. What was the light? I don't know, and you don't either. There's some things he just doesn't tell. I don't know what the light is. He never tells what the light is. It's not the sun, because a few verses later, over in verse 16, it says he made the greater light rule the day, the lesser light rule the night. So back when he created light to start with, it wasn't the sun. So, you know what I'm saying? And he's saying there's some things in there that they don't tell you what they are, and you can dig and study, and, and they're just not there. But then there's others that... That they are there. there. There's things to learn, but they're, they're not for surface reading. They're not for your 15, 20-minute devotion every morning. They're for your study. They're for when you want to take time to do some word study. They're when you, want to, when you want to dig in and you want to try to search and put things together. It's almost like God deliberately hides some things to give you something to study about. But it's amazing to me when you're studying for something how much other stuff you find. It's almost like that's the bait to get you in. But once you get in there, there's all kinds of stuff that God just starts revealing and, and puts in there. So I did a little bit of study on, on these individuals. Um, I, I learned a good bit about each of the ones that he names here as much as I could. But I had to learn it from theologians, from commentaries at different men, right? Because obviously in, in the names that are mentioned here in verses 5 through 15, they're not mentioned anywhere else in the Scriptures. They're not there anywhere, so I'm not going to really go in the Bible and, and learn and tell about them by name because it's not there. So I tried studying them, but most of the stuff that I found is probably accurate. I have no reason to, to doubt those men. Some, if, if I'm studying behind their work, I believe them to be very scriptural men. I believe them to be very dedicated men, and I, I believe them to be solid uh, on the foundation of the truth, or I wouldn't study behind them in their works. So if I'm going to study behind them in the works, then obviously I believe that they're relatively accurate in a lot of things. And so they gave me reason to believe a lot of things that they talked about these people was probably accurate, and it was quite informative. But what I have in the Word of God from verse 16 on, I know for a fact. It's not speculation. It's not just the people. So I'm just telling you for that reason. If you want to study these names and study these people, there's probably something in there for you to learn. There's probably something good there from studying their lifestyles, but tonight I'm not. Y'all know this hasn't been a word-by-word word through Romans anyway, although we've been here for more than a year. It's more of kind of a scan. So we're going to drop down, if you would, to verse number 16. Paul says, salute one another with an holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. That would have been customary in the day. I mean, today when I come in the door, listen, I love you. I promise I do. I mean it, but do not kiss me on any portion of my body. But shake hand and hug my neck. If you, don't let, if, if you don't hug my neck, I can be offended by that. If you don't shake my hand, well, I can take the fist bump. I'm getting over it. COVID, COVID got me past it. So some of you can wear that crutch, and you don't have to shake hands if you don't want to. But it's kind of customary today. We shake hands. We hug one another's neck. That's what greet with a holy kiss. That's what he's talking about here. It's, just, it's a sign of love amongst the brethren. It's a sign of acceptance and mutual respect has come together. But then in verse 17... Paul gives a warning. He says, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. 
They that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. By good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Paul says, mark them that sow discord. Mark them that create division in the church. Especially mark those who are false teachers. Mark those who teach something contradictory to the word of God. Paul gives this same warning to almost half of the churches that he writes to. We've already looked at some of the letters. We know when he wrote to the church at Galatia, it was plagued with legalism. We know that the church at Colossus had a lot of idolatry there. They were plagued with false doctrine, people in the church trying to bring up false doctrine. We know when he wrote to Thessalonica, there was a lot of false eschatological teaching. They, they were missing it in, that's the teaching of death and the judgment after death and the eternal life heaven and hell. There was a lot of things being taught wrong there. Um, we know that, that Paul warned these churches of the things that was going on, what was going on inside of that church. If you remember, there was a lot of discord in the church at Corinth, and Paul talked about the one that was sowing discord. It was obviously one person because he calls this person out and says, get him out of the church and come together with him, gather him with the brethren. If he, if he won't walk the line, you had to put him out. But you can't allow him to continue to sow discord inside the house of God. So we see him write to the churches often about problems that are going in. But, but here, he's, he, he's speaking really of, of false teaching. If there's any false teaching in your church, get rid of it. If there's anybody in there that's bringing false lies, false doctrines in the church, get rid of it. it it's, kind of, it's kind of like a leaking dam. You know, you, you build a dam up. It doesn't matter how big the river is. You just build a bigger dam to hold up however much water you want, and the dam's holding everything back. You can get a pinhole spring out in a dam, and it's okay. Patch it. Fix it. But if you leave that pinhole alone, water begins to erode, and it begins to cut. And before you know it, that pinhole becomes a leak, and that leak becomes a squirt, and eventually it'll get to the point that it'll break the dam. Well, Paul is saying, if you got a pinhole in something, fix it while you can. Don't let the problem get so big. Now you really got something big on your hands, and it's too big to deal with. Go ahead and get the leaks out now. Go ahead and take care of it while it's small. Paul says, mark them. Well, the best way to mark them is to compare them to the truth. Some, somebody tries to give you something, and you think that's new. Maybe it is new. Maybe, maybe they've seen something in the Scripture that you haven't seen it that way before, but take nobody's word for it, including me. You hear me? Take nobody's word for it, including me. Measure it against a straight line. You don't know if something's straight, you put it against a straight ruler. You don't know if something's right, you compare it to the Word of God. Somebody gives you something, you go to the Word of God, you study it. If I say something in this pulpit don't make sense to you, you go to God's Word and you study it. If I'm wrong, you tell me you think I'm wrong. We'll talk about it. You show me I'm wrong, and I'll apologize to everybody here, and we'll study it different. But, but I'm telling you, it doesn't matter if somebody tells you if it sounds new to you. Y'all been in church a long time. If it sounds strange, there's a good chance it might be strange. If it sounds weird, it's probably not a very strong theology. You know, you've heard it before, but when they want to teach people to look for counterfeit bills, they don't bring in all these different counterfeit bills and teach them and try to show them all the different ways because there's a whole lot of different ways to mess up or make a counterfeit. When they want to teach people to look for counterfeit money, they take the original. 
and they teach them to memorize the original. And when you have perfectly memorized an original $20 bill, as soon as the counterfeit pops up, you'll recognize it right off. It's no different with the Word of God. If we will put the Word of God in our hearts and put it as a straight line, as the fixed image in our life, when somebody brings a crooked edge in, it's not going to line up. So what Paul is saying here is make sure that, that you keep that out. Make, make sure that, that you, when you hear something new that's not there, make sure that you address that, you fix that. Don't just let that creep around in the house of God. Yeah, I might as well go ahead and put them in. I might as well go ahead and say it. Jehovah's Witness thrives on people that go to church every once in a while. They love part-time Christianity. They, they love contemporary Christianity. They love casual Christianity. They, they love people that go to church every once in a while, know a little bit, but don't know much. Because they come to the door, they mention God, they mention Christ, they think they got you on the hook and they begin to reel you in. But those guys are drilled. They, they are taught. They are trained what to come to your door and say. They are trained in the Scriptures. Here's where you'll run into problem with them. If you try to sit there and talk to them on what they're at and you don't know enough Scripture to shut them up, they will win every argument with you because they are drilled in what they are telling you. But if you'll get them off their game, take them to a Scripture you know you don't know one to take them to, take them to the blood of Jesus Christ. You really want to get one? Take them to who is Jesus Christ. I'll share a little bit more about that in just a minute. But, but Paul says, For they are such that they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but by their own belly and good works and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. What Paul is saying is that they're motivated by their own interest. They, they are driven by their own belly. Later on, Paul writes to the church at Philippi. When he writes to the church at Philippi, he says that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is the shame, who mind earthly things. Paul says they serve a God, but it's not our God. They claim that they have a Christ, but it is not our Christ. Today, they, they show up and they mention Christ. They mention God to make you think they're on the same page. Listen, we are not all the same. Anybody hear me? Christians and all the other religions of the world and all the stuff that's going on, we are not the same. I started not to put any time in this, but I thought, you know what? It's Wednesday night. If I'm going to mention it, I need to give a few examples of what I'm talking about so you'll understand where we are. And this is the world that we live in today. Modernists do a lot of pushing today trying to reach out and get people. Modernists talk about a Christ. They have a Christ. They even call his name Jesus, but he is not virgin born. I'm taking this from their own works out of a book called The Kingdom of the Cults. It comes off the own pages of their own heading of their own literature. So every one of these, I'm giving you stuff from their own headlines of who their Christ is. He is not virgin born. He is a man that was so good, he convinced people to follow him. And because of that, they mistook him for a God. He was the world's greatest teacher, but he was not divine at all, other than in the sense that all men are equally divine. They say that Christ did not perform any miracles. The miracles that are mentioned in the New Testament of the Bible are simply over-exaggerated truths by men that wanted him to be a God because they believed in him. That is their take of their Christ. They can have that if they want it. That's their Christ, but it ain't mine. 
That's their Christ, but it's not the Christ of the Christian. It's not the Christ of those of us who have been bought with the price, born again, washed in the blood. All this stuff you, you can prove. You don't have to take my word for it. Just spend a little bit of time. Well, I don't know if I want to encourage you to do that. If you're not rock solid, don't spend no time. Spend, spend, spend your time in the straight line. Don't, don't worry about what cults believe if you're not absolute in the straight line. The only reason I need to study cults is because I need to know when people come how to combat that stuff. But if you're not an absolute in the straight line, leave the crooked lines alone. But if you just want to know where it's at, you're welcome, you're welcome to look in it. The Mormons, they have a Christ. He was the son of Adam, of God, and Mary. He was a polygamist. He's secretly married to Martha and both of the Marys in the Scripture. His atonement has nothing to do with you and I. It was only for the sin of Adam. His death has nothing to do with you, so there's no forgiveness of sins for you. So they claim a Christ, but their Christ is not our Christ. Paul says they bring in any form of doctrine, anything different. Jehovah's Witness, they, they say they have a Christ. They'll use Jesus standing on your front doorstep after they've knocked on your door. They'll, they'll talk about God, and they'll, leave, they'll even pull out a King James or any other version of the Bible and begin to, to read scriptures from it. But ask them who Jesus Christ is. You want to stop them at your door, and you want to end the conversation. You two are not going to agree because they do not agree with who Christ is. He is not the Son of the living God. He is not the only begotten Son of God. He is a Son of God. He is the first created being, one of many angels. Many believe was probably Michael, the first archangel. And then he became man. He is not the second person in the Godhead. He's not part of the Trinity. He's just one of many created sons that God has. He came into the world. He was a perfect human, nothing more. The ransom that he offers does not guarantee eternal life. It has to be earned. Look at Jehovah's Witness stuff. There's a reason they're knocking on your doors every Saturday. They got to earn their way in. Hello, there's only 144,000 according to them that can even get in. So if, if you're one of the 144,000 in, somebody else outworks you, you lose your spot. You, you have to work your way in. That is what they teach. That is the garbage that they put there. He, Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. The watchtower does not know what happened to the body, but it did not walk out of that tomb. Those who glorify Charles Taze Russell, they have a Christ, but he is not Jesus Christ of the Bible. He's not the one that saved my soul. He's not the one that cleansed all my sins. They claim they have a Christ, but they are false doctrines false teachers. Another one that we deal with a lot today, Hollywood pushes Christian science a lot. Christian science says they have a Christ, but he's not a God. He is a divine idea. His blood is of no more value to you today than it was when it flowed through his veins as he walked as a human on earth. He accommodated himself and led people astray because of their weakness. He simply deceived the weak. They have a Christ, but that's not my Christ. The spiritualist, they have a Christ, but he's nothing more than a medium. He's a fortune teller. He's, he's a palm reader. That, that's what he was. He wasn't divine. He was just an advanced spirit who was able to communicate with the spirit world and, and foretell things. His death has no atoning value. He was simply a Jew whose life was ended by an unfortunate incident, um, death untimely, but it had nothing to do with salvation. They have a Christ. They, they have a religion. They have a basis. Their Christ is not our Christ. 
Their God is not our God. Those are leaks in the dam. That stuff comes in the church. That stuff's got to get out. That stuff comes to your front door. Tell them about Jesus. If they don't listen, kick them off your porch like a stray dog. Get from him. Get on. Get on. Get. Run them on out. That's what daddy always did. That's the same way I do. A stray dog in the yard. Get, get on him. They look at you like, what? So, so all of these are, are cults. They are false witnesses. All Cults have a, a Christ, some form of a God, but they are not the same as Christians. Christians, we are washed in the blood of the Lamb of God. He is the only begotten Son of God. He was born of a virgin named Mary. He was supernaturally conceived of the Holy Ghost of God. He was born in Bethlehem. He lived a perfect life here. He died on Calvary's cross for my sins and for your sin. The only reason he came here was to get on that cross so somebody like me that deserved to go to hell don't have to go to hell, that my name might be written in the Lamb's book of life and glory for all of eternity. That's my God. That's my Christ. That's what he did for me. That's not what they have. Jesus Christ said that he was God. He claimed to be God. One with God. He proved it with all the many miracles. The Word of God tells us that if all the miracles have been told, that the world couldn't contain the books of all that he did. We just got a handful of things that he did. But he did many miracles, many signs and wonders before and after, before the crucifixion, after the resurrection. But he also, before he ever came, he told about his birth. Thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be least among the thousands. Bethlehem was prophesied before he ever got there that he'd be born in Bethlehem. Every step of his life was prophesied. Every aspect of the cross was, was perfectly prophesied. The way that he would die. All of it he prophesied before he ever came. And then he did it exactly like it was prophesied, proving that he was God. Amen. Paul says, if anybody preaches another Christ, mark them, avoid them, get them out of the church. And if you're strong enough to lead them to the Lord, okay. And if you can't, listen, you can't agree to disagree. You can tell them they're wrong in part ways. But, but you cannot allow that fellowship within the house of God. He says in verse 19, your obedience has come abroad unto all men. I'm glad, therefore, on your behalf, but yet I would not have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. That's the fourth time in this one letter that Paul has talked about obedience. As we studied it, we saw in chapter 1 and verse 5, he says, By whom we receive grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Chapter 5, Paul gave us the contrast between obedient and disobedient. When he, he said in chapter 5, verse 19, is by one man's disobedience. Many were made sinners, speaking of Adam. So by the obedience of one, that would be Jesus Christ, shall many be made righteous. And then in verse number 6, he reminded us, that however we live our lives, that is a demonstration of who we obey. Nobody heard that. However we live our lives is a demonstration of who we serve. However we live our lives is a demonstration of what we truly believe. Verse, verse number 16 of Romans chapter 6. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Obedience to God is simply proving we believe what we say we believe, doing what God tells us to do. If we believe God, then we'll obey God. 
So Paul is writing here to, to the church at Rome, and, and he's reminding them, keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't, don't let other things come in. Remember, we've already looked at the church here at Rome as a combination of Jews who were raised up in their rich Old Testament tradition and the Gentile who was raised up in all their false religions. I mean, here they are in Rome. They've been brought up in something that would have been comparable to America in their day. I mean, they had a lot of luxuries. They had a lot of things. Rome is the Gentile capital of the world. It is the most powerful nation in the world. They, if there's any luxuries to be had, it was to be had there in Rome. But Rome is very rich in tradition of idolatry. They had a God for everything under the sun. They had a God to heal your little toe ache, a God to heal your toothache, a God to make your hair grow. They, they had all different kinds of gods for rain gods and sun gods. And there was all types of idolatry there in, in Rome. So these people grew up with that in Rome. Now as Christians, they have been delivered from their old way of life just like you and I. How many remember when you got saved? We had the help of the Holy Spirit. We had the Holy Spirit help us break some things, but some of it didn't come easy, did it? Some of it was harder to break than other things. Some of it was harder to get away from. So, so basically what they have here is you've got some of their Christians now, but they still got their rabbit's foot in their pocket. They're, they're, they're Christians now, but they still won't step on a crack, break your mama's back. They're Christians now, but, but they still won't stop on the number 13. In reality, some of them probably still had some wooden figurines on their mantle that they once gave loyalty to, and they just haven't been able to throw it away yet. Some of them may have had a shrine that was once in the yard, and now they brought it in the bedroom so that other people don't see they still have it. But they still have some things in their life that, that they're, they're holding on to as things of the past. Listen, it's no different than you and I. We've talked about it so many times about how the devil uses the things of our past against us. He keeps bringing them up. For them, it's false gods and idol worship. For you and I, it's the mistakes that we made that the devil continually reminds us of how bad we are. And there's no way you could be a Christian. God couldn't love anybody like you. God couldn't save anybody like you. Why would God want somebody like you? That's the only thing in, on this whole universe that I agree with the devil on. It makes no sense why God wants me. But I know he does. So devil in Jesus' name, shut up and leave me alone. I don't know why he wants me, but you can't talk him out of it. Amen? We don't come this far. We're going to stay the rest of it. If the power of God was enough to get them beyond their idol worship, then the power of God is enough to get us beyond our past. To, to get us to, to a place where we can be one with God. A great example in the Old Testament. I, I've got just a few more minutes, and so we'll finish whatever we can. But a great example in the Old Testament would have been Moses. Moses, you know the story found in the bulrush, Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised an Egyptian, right? Acts chapter 7, verse 22, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and deeds. In spite of the fact that he was raised an Egyptian, he chose God. Just like this church at Rome, in spite of the fact they were raised in idolatry, they were raised Romans, they have chosen 
Christ. In spite of the fact that many, many of you may have been not brought up in the church and not been carried to church your whole life, you're raising all kinds of stuff. Lord have mercy, if you had a television in your house, if you got a television in your house now, you, you've got all kind of sin that just infiltrates us through commercial. We're raising all kinds of stuff, but because you're a Christian, you've chosen God. Moses was raised in the way of the Egyptian, learned all the wisdom of the Egyptians, mighty in words and deeds, but he chose to follow God. He chose God's people. But in his pride of who he was in trying to help one of his Hebrew brethren, instead of becoming a missionary, he became a murderer. Instead of being a missionary to help the Hebrew or even try to reach the Egyptian, he killed an Egyptian because the Egyptian was beating up one of the Hebrew brethren. So then he has to run. Now, for 40 years, he's on the backside of the Midian Desert. For 40 years, he lives over in the wilderness. It took 40 years for him to gain all of the self-confidence that he had, all of the all of the strong will that he had it took him 40 years to learn all that in Egypt it took him 40 years to get all that out of his system I know you've heard it said I looked I don't know who said it first but I wrote it down because I know you've heard it anyway but the saying says it only took Moses a day to get out of Egypt but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Moses that that's a lot like you and I God has the same long-suffering with me that he had with Moses. God has the same long-suffering with you that he had with Moses. It took us a long time to get to where we were. On, on the day we got saved, we had spent probably years getting to where we were and all the things that were in us. In an instant, God saved us. But it's going to take years. I mean, in a second, we were delivered from the world but we'll spend the rest of our lives trying to get the world out of us, amen? Trying to, trying to get the things out. So, so Paul says, mark those of false teaching. Stay away from the things of your past. Stay away from those who teach something contradictory to the Word of God. There, there are a lot today that, that some things they'll consider little things. The world hides things behind a lot of cute names today. I, I, they, they can call abortion what they want to. God still calls it murder. They can call homosexuality, alternate lifestyle, all they want to. God still calls it an abomination. So the world tries to hide behind all these cute names, and you have some in positions in churches go, just leave the small battles alone. Just, just fight the big battles, leave them alone. Paul says, not for a minute. Don't let the leak in the dam break the dam. Fix it while it's fixable. See, a lot of these leaks have been allowed to go on so long. They're big leaks right now. They, they, are, they are things to combat in this country. They've grown to, to great sizes. Paul says, don't give an inch. If you give an inch, the devil's going to take a mile. But the world says, oh, be politically correct. Live and let live. I'm sorry I can't do that. I'm, I'm sorry. I have to at least tell you there is a Christ. I have to at least tell you that God loves you. I have to at least tell somebody that's lost and on their way to hell that God loved them so much that he sent Jesus Christ who paid for their sin. Whether they accept the gift, gift or not is strictly up to them, but the gift is there. The price is paid. Salvation is yours. I can't just agree to disagree. I have to tell you the truth. 
But the world today is like, no, nah, man, don't, don't, don't make mountains out of molehills. No, I'm, I'm not. I'm praying to a God that can move mountains, to a God that, that, that can turn this nation back around, to a God that can still reach down and save lost souls just like he saved this one. For your obedience has come abroad unto all men. I'm glad, therefore, on your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. Paul goes on in verse 20, and I'm, I'll read this, and we're going we're gonna to have to stop. But he says, The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. If you all know what he's talking about right there, you might want to study Daniel and Revelation a little bit. You can get excited about that. God's going to crush Satan. He, he, it ain't just, it ain't just the, the cast into the bottomless pit and chains for the thousand-year millennial reign. When that's all said and done, he will be cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. There he shall be tormented day and night forever. His presence will never surface again. God will destroy Satan in our presence. We're never going to have to deal with him again after that day. But we don't have to wait till then to be victorious. We have Christ in us now. We can be victorious over sin now. We can be victorious over our past now. We can be victorious over shortcomings and failures now. Paul says there's coming a day. There's coming a day when God will destroy Satan once and for all. But, but then he, he begins to, to sign off, and, and Paul does all of his letters this way. He gives a benedictory prayer for all of the saints. I, I like to think that since he was praying for the church, he was praying for you and I. He prays when he says, for all of the saints. How many of you are a saint? As far as I'm concerned, Paul's praying for us. He, he prays here at, at this part of the letter. He, he prays in his letters that the peace of God be with us so that the power of God be on us so that people can see the presence of God in us. If we have the peace of God on us, then we have a peace that makes no sense to the world. We have a peace in times of storms. We have a peace in times of disaster. We, have, we, we are right side up when the world's upside down. So when we have the peace of God on us. It's something that the world can see because it just doesn't make sense. If we have the power of God on us, we're able to rise above temptations. We're able to say no to the wiles of the devil, no to the lies. We're able to say no to the temptations that are put before us because of the power of God. So when we have those things, people have to see Christ in us. And that's all we can ask of God. When we walk into the throne room, that's our number one prayer. God, help me today to let people see Christ in me. Well, don't let them see me. I'm the same old vile, dirty, wicked, ain't no good, ain't going to be no good. Only thing, if there's anything good about me, his name is Jesus. All my sins washed away. So God, don't, don't let people see me today. Unfortunately, me surfaces sometimes. I shouldn't have said that in closing. Y'all going to go home and remember that. I ain't coming back there no more. Does y'all's me ever surface any? Y'all know what I'm going to say. If you live in this town, you got a driver's license, it does. Man, we need some driver's ed in this town. God, let people see Christ in me. Help me to walk a life, please, and use it. When others see me, they see you. Let them see a joy in me that don't make sense, so they want what I got. We walk around with old poochy lips all the time, mad and been out of shape, mad at the world, and everything's going wrong upside down. Why do they want what I got? The joy I have is greater than the problems we face. Amen? God, thank you so much. <coughs> thank you for this letter, God. Thank you that I know 
you addressed it at the hand of Paul to the church at Rome. But God, you've preserved it for these more than 2,000 years to hand it to the church right here in LaGrange, Georgia, and all the churches today, or all of your church today, God. I, I thank you for it. I thank you for what it teaches. I thank you for the lessons that, that we've looked at. God, I, I thank you, Father, for the reminder to, to keep our eyes on the, on the straight edge, to keep our eyes on your word. And if anything doesn't measure up with the straight edge, get it out of our life. Keep it away from us and, and walk a straight, narrow path with you, God. Thank you so much for loving us the way you do. Thank you for grace and mercy that is unexplainable, unable to comprehend. Thank you, God, for a love that, that makes no sense at all that you could love us that way. Thank you for the confidence that I have in knowing that you do, God. I pray you'd help us, Lord, to be pleasing to you. May, may people see Christ in us and Christ through us in all we do. In Jesus' name we pray.